Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified, this is a special Racism in New England. Many of our laws tell a story of desegregation and diversity, but in reality, segregation continues in some communities. When we came to Cleveland Avenue, my family was the first black family on Cleveland Avenue. I came back from uh, my tour of duty in the jungles of Vietnam in 1968. I came home, there was a white neighbor on my street. Restrictive housing policies that keep people of color from moving to those same suburbs. And outright housing discrimination. We rented the apartment yesterday. Come to find out, they actually had two units available. They just didn't want to show it to that person. And a feeling that you're just not welcome. If you are the first or one of the few whether it has to do with race or sexual orientation, the strain is, um, it's something else. That's coming up after the break. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us on Next. Today, we continue our series of specials focusing on racism in New England. The specials are a collaboration between the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified. Two guest hosts take the helm in this show. John Dankoski is from New England Public Media and the America Amplified Project. And Tracy Griffith is a professor of media studies, journalism, and digital arts at St. Michael's College in Vermont. I'll let them take it from here. Thanks, Morgan. For some context, I've spent about 25 years living in and covering the state of Connecticut. It's a place that has cities and suburbs and rural areas, and there are big divides between who lives in each of those places. Tracy, tell me about where you live. So I live in Vermont. I've lived here for close to 20 years now. You've lived in Vermont for 20 years, and we're going to hear from someone in just a moment talking about how he feels as a black person living in Vermont. How do you feel? You know, I I love living in Vermont. It is at times challenging, yet the quality of life just is amazing. You can't beat it. There's this pull and there's this push and there's good and there's bad. And that's how you feel living in Vermont as a person of color, right? There are some things that are just wonderful. The quality of life is wonderful. And there are other things that are not so great. You are often singled out. You are hyper visible. Um, And so there's this good and bad. In Connecticut, there really is this sense that a lot of people in the suburbs and in rural areas fear the cities. The city is where they live. And and Tracy, is that something that that you feel has persisted throughout your life in in New England, this sense that some people view people who don't look like them as outsiders? Well, that's very interesting that you would that you would mention that, John. When I moved to Vermont, I heard the exact same thing. You wouldn't want to live there. You probably wouldn't want to go there. But it was the opposite. As a person of color, it's not safe. It's probably not a welcoming environment for you. So you might not want to move outside of, say, Chittenden County, where Burlington is, because there are areas where it just might not be comfortable for you to live there. Hmm. That's interesting. 
Yeah. It, well, and how does that feel? You know, it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting approach, right? Because I think oftentimes, you know, people want to live and associate with people who are very much like themselves. And so there's a level of curiosity. There's a level of sometimes discomfort, um, a little bit of a challenge. And so, you know, you it's what you make it. I think I could probably live anywhere. Before we talk about how housing became so segregated in New England, we wanted you to meet Reuben Jackson. He's a former Vermont resident and former host of Friday Night Jazz on Vermont Public Radio. He left the program in 2018, and he now lives in Washington, D.C. Reuben's experience will show why it's so important to find a welcoming community. It's the difference between a place where you live and a place that you can actually call home. Reuben, nice to speak to you. Nice to speak with you. You lived in Vermont in two very different decades. First, as a Goddard student back in the 1970s, and then you returned as a teacher and later as an on-air host in the 2010s, somewhere around there? Right, 2012, August 2012, yeah. Okay, so how was the Vermont you returned to in the last decade similar or maybe different from the Vermont of your college years? Okay, that's a great question. The first thing, the most obvious thing was there had been something of a demographic shift in terms of people of color. I mean, I've told this story a zillion times, but I started Goddard in 1975. If in the course of a week going into Montpelier or driving to Burlington, if I saw, say, three black people, I would call my family who wondered like how I was doing anyway. And I'd say, I saw three black people. It was a big deal. Vermont was a little less isolated in 2011 when I came to teach, you know, the two years I did at Burlington High School. Really, I mean, being 18 at Goddard, and I love being at Goddard, you know, you walk down the street in Montpelier and people would just stare, which you can still get in in certain pockets of the state. So that's a difference. I think sameness, I do feel that people of color are still considered like we're the question marks, we're the people to be feared, particularly like black American men. I don't think that was any different. Right. So there was a sense of hyper visibility. Oh, goodness. Yes. Okay. The 2010 census shows that the population of Vermont is about 95.3% white. How would you characterize your experiences as a BIPOC? Well, let's define that, right? Black, indigenous, person of color, right? How would you characterize your experiences as a BIPOC in such an overwhelmingly white state? Boy, to say stressful, that's kind of an umbrella term, but that's a good way to put it. Not that there weren't and aren't things I love about Vermont. And, you know, struggling with that polarity is that's probably like a, <laughs> a 700, 800 page book. See, for me, it was starting with the schools in Burlington. It's like, okay, another attempt to bring in and retain supposedly a teacher of color. So you're like the new black teacher. And as you know, if you are the first or one of the few whether it has to do with race or sexual orientation, 
the strain is um, it's something else. And you know, people wanting you to represent all black people, you're carrying all this and just trying to be Reuben. I would describe it as hyper stressful. Right. An extra burden. Mm -hmm. That's it. Beautiful. That's it. Did you feel that you were welcomed in Vermont? Yes and no. Um, Metaphorically, I would describe my experience like windshield wipers, like one end you're loved. And then on the other hand, it's why are you here? We don't want you here. Coupled with the denial that people feel that this animosity was not part of life there you know it's like you have two dogs in the ring coming at you one is like the overt deeply entrenched racism and then there's one coming at you which says no this is not true and they're both biting you and you know what people will tell you the first dog doesn't exist like no no that's not a problem here but you got cuts and you got to get stitches for all that stuff so it was it was hard to um experience a middle ground like just an everyday life most of my family of choice is in vermont which makes it even more complicated but i think the goodness is unlike anything i've ever experienced it's also some of the most formidable racism i have ever and not that i'm 99 years old and i've been a zillion places but boy um so yeah like i said it's You could call it the combo platter, really. The combo platter. Wow. So you know that in July of this year, uh, VPR and Vermont PBS did a poll and they asked Vermont residents, thinking about racial and ethnic diversity, would you consider your community to be a place that is welcoming to diversity or not? And out of the 603 residents that were surveyed, 81% said they consider their community to be welcoming to diversity. What's your reaction to that? Why the disconnect in terms of what you're saying and what this survey reveals? My first response is that I'm not surprised. And that's the other dog in the ring, you know, for me, that this, this fervent denial of this nastiness. Now, I think a lot of people don't want to believe that there is this kind of thing happening in their communities. Northern bigotry or what Malcolm X called living up south, I think it's more harmful in many respects. I remember once being in St. Johnsbury going to MC a concert and I was with a former colleague, we're driving by these houses and there are these big like Confederate flags on steroids. And my colleague said, what do you think when you see those flags? And I said, clarity, you know, it's like, I know where they stand. Vermont has been one way for so long, and it it doesn't mean everyone who feels that things are better than maybe you and I might um, discern is deliberately trying to, no pun, whitewash everything. But um, boy, white is the norm. It's possible that, that racism exists in Vermont like it does in the other 49 states. I'm being a little facetious because, like, yeah, you know, heck yeah, it does exist. And this seems like a minuscule step, but even if people would acknowledge the possibility, it won't crash everything. But goodness, it's hard to fight something people tell you is not there and you're beat up. 
You know, you just your insides are beat up. Right. Do you think that change is possible, Ruben? Ooh. What what will it take for Vermont to move towards a more equitable culture? I said this when I lived there, and I believe it still, and this also applies to the country as a whole. I think Vermont needs its soul shaken. And the myth has to be dismantled from within. Vermont is still the frontier. For me, it's just entering the civil rights movement. Is change possible? I mean, I hope so, because I wouldn't wish the physiological toll of racism on anyone. You know, even I had friends, have friends of color there who told me I'd lived here X number of years and nothing ever happened to me. And I would say, I hope it's true because I began to worry about the toll it was taking on me and how I might begin to view myself in an environment where kind of supplication is expected. And that's what I mean by you have to really push because you have to fight against that expectation that you will just be calm and say, well, yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to go fly fishing now. And all that stuff, which we ingest, has to go somewhere. And it takes its toll. Oh, yes. Yes. Ruben, could you ever see yourself moving back to Vermont? (laughs) That's the $64,000 question. Well, yes, because it is my home in, in a lot of ways, you know, with potholes and everything. And part of this is it could be pandemic work at home, big picture reflection that many or all of us are going through. But I think about getting older and it's, I would say the jury still in the jury box. I think coming back, like, you know, I work at the city university. I'm just, I'm an archivist. I'm not the black archivist because I'm at an HBCU and no one, my interest and skills are not considered an anomaly. And it sounds like a basic thing, but it helped get my humanity back. I don't, I don't want to live the rest of my life, you know, being kind of back in the jack in the box. I couldn't do that. So we'll see. It's interesting, as you say, getting back your humanity, that you had to leave Vermont to reclaim your humanity. It's no small thing. It's just no small thing. And uh, I didn't know how beat up I was until it's like you're recovering. You know, I came back and slowly recovering. And I remember I started my job in May of 2018. And I'm taking the subway to work and I'm on the subway platform. And I realized like nobody's staring at me just to not be considered an oddity. Well, Ruben, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It has been refreshing talking to you. And thanks for sharing. Sure, sure. I hope it's of use. That was Ruben Jackson, a former Vermont resident who now lives in Washington, D.C. Amara Ifeji is Black, and she's a recent high school graduate. She moved to Bangor, Maine from the D.C. area when she was nine years old. 
I remember the first time I stepped foot in a store in Bangor. I just remember these eyes like piercing through my soul. And I was like, why is everybody looking at me? And another question I had was, why does nobody look like me? Um, Because I had never grown up in that kind of environment. So Amara says she tried to conform, but she got backlash for that, too. I had begun to like conform to the rural society that I'm living in. And so I um, just, I guess, straightened my hair and I stopped bringing like my like traditional African food um, from home and things like that. And then in that, I thought, you know, now I'll be accepted. But instead, I was referred to as a panda bear or an Oreo because I was perceived black on the outside. um, But eternally, truly, I was white or I wanted to be white. And that hurt, obviously. That was Amara Ifeji, recorded for our New England News Collaborative video project. After the break, we'll dig into how redlining and zoning policies are keeping much of New England segregated. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. Welcome back. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Tracy Griffith. Where people live in New England isn't completely defined by race, but across the region you see traditional patterns of segregation that have persisted. In northern New England, where I live, there are a few people of color, and we often live in just a few towns and cities. And in southern New England, where I live, there's more diversity, but there's a big divide between who lives in urban areas and suburban towns. We asked you, our listeners, to weigh in. Matthew DeVell from Springfield, Massachusetts, had this insight into the effects of housing segregation. He wrote in an email, The governance of many towns in New England is based on town meeting. To attend town meeting, you have to live there. If the town restricts renters, that restricts those that cannot afford to live there. And Tracy, that's something that housing policy experts have been talking about for years. This notion that our locally controlled governments have a lot of say over who gets to live in which communities. That's right, John. And there's a group called Desegregate Connecticut. They're looking to change this. It's organized in part by Sarah Bronin. She's Mexican-American, an architect, attorney, and land use expert. She happens to be married to the mayor of the city of Hartford. She told us about some of the policies that have led to very low numbers of black and brown residents in more affluent suburbs. For example, minimum lot zoning, which requires housing to be single family, detached housing on large lots. Those, that kind of housing is not attainable to a large segment of the population. Another example of past policies has been bank redlining, where banks specifically identified neighborhoods where banks would lend money and uh, the, the less favorable neighborhoods. So what the redlining and what zoning policies have done over time is had the effects of discriminating on the basis of race, discriminating on the basis of income. And we're still suffering from those effects today on many different levels. We also asked Sarah Bronin to address the question our listener Matthew posed. How do you actually change anything in town government when you're kept from living in the town and having a say? So to answer this question, I think you really have to look back at the way state zoning laws uh, developed. They really developed in the 1920s. A series of uh, model state zoning enabling laws uh, were advanced by the U.S. Department of Commerce, led at the time by uh, Herbert Hoover. Uh, And those state zoning enabling acts 
were distributed widely and adopted by every state, including Connecticut. And what they do is they enable local governments the uh, power to zone. It didn't necessarily have to be that way. It could have been that states set out regional authorities to zone, or perhaps even the state set out its own powers uh, to zone. The way that we've set uh, things up here in Connecticut, it does seem like this idea of localism is highly entrenched. But the result of that has been, uh, on a statewide basis, uh, policies at the local level that hurt the state as a whole. So whether we're talking about the fact that Connecticut does not produce enough housing as a state to enable population growth and attract new people, or whether we're talking about the fact that environmental degradation occurs when we have minimum lot sizes that sprawl outward and eat up greenfields and agricultural lands. Uh, This is really not a local issue, land use controls in all respects. Uh, It is a statewide issue and it is hurting our state, not just on the equity front, but also on economic and environmental grounds. But since town control is how zoning decisions are made in a big part of our region, a small number of suburban town officials who are mostly white have an outsized impact. You see the effect in town council meetings where residents often push back on plans to add any affordable housing. So you do have communities in Connecticut that will allow on the books uh, multifamily housing or affordable housing. But yet when those projects are proposed and when they go through the application process and when they get to a public hearing in some of these communities, you see a lot of opposition come out. And sometimes the opposition uh, is is not so thinly veiled racism and classism. In other cases, it's a little bit um, more disguised. But sometimes you hear the words like, okay, the traffic or imposition on, on, on sewer systems or other things uh, that people use, uh, in some cases, not with any real technical expertise when they're saying these things and, and not with any real substantive data behind what they're saying, but they'll use phrases to object to projects, not necessarily because of the traffic or sewer problems, but because of the people who will be introduced to those communities. And so even though the law might say, well, you know, our town allows a a multifamily uh, building, but just not this multifamily building. And we see that in too many communities across Connecticut. As an example, here's a recording from a planning and zoning meeting in the town of Westport, Connecticut, an affluent suburb of New York. Chip Stevens is speaking. He's one of the commissioners. And he's reacting to a plan for a mixed single and multifamily housing development. To me, this is ghettoizing Westport. This is putting a whole bunch of density in one area, making up for, you know, taking down houses all over town, which are affordable, semi-affordable and whatever. In case you're wondering about the affordable and semi-affordable homes in Westport, the median single family listing price there is $1.5 million. Now, in Hartford, Connecticut, the median list price for a home is under $200,000. And in the city's north end, a predominantly black neighborhood, the property values are even lower. The north end of Hartford wasn't just subject to historical bank redlining, though. It was also victim to a highway construction plan that cut it off from the rest of the city. It's never recovered economically. But our next guest, Steve Harris, says his neighborhood wasn't always like this. Harris is a retired firefighter, a Vietnam vet, and a former city councilman. Steve Harris, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Why don't you start by describing the neighborhood where you live? Well, the neighborhood where I live now is pretty much a uh, typical black, middle-class neighborhood. If you're familiar with Hartford, Hartford doesn't have a very high home ownership rate. 
many of the folks on, on my block owned their property. Uh, in many cases, like mine, the home was passed down from generation to generation. Neighbors know neighbors. And, and you know your neighbors because you've lived there your whole life. Many all my life. My whole life. I'm 73 years old. I've been here from pretty much day one. I'm just a, I tell people, I'm just a neighborhood guy. And this, this community raised me. This community actually helped raise me. And, and I've, you know, for me, it's, it's just real simple. If people who can make a difference all leave, who's left to make a difference? How have you seen a change? Well, I mean, the change is, uh, when we came to Cleveland Avenue, my family was the first black family on Cleveland Avenue. The majority of my um, classmates were white. Years went by, the block became a lot, obviously a little, lot more integrated. We saw more black families. Uh, we saw a few Latina families. When I came back from uh, my tour of duty in the jungles of Vietnam in 1968, I came home four weeks after Dr. King got assassinated. There wasn't a white neighbor on my street when I got home. Hmm. It seems as though nothing ever went back to the neighborhood you remember. I, I tell my children and I tell my grandsons that this is not the Hartford that I grew up in. This this Hartford that you're growing up in is not the, kind of the Hartford that I grew up in. It was entirely different. And they, they don't really see that because they didn't have the experience of living in an integrated neighborhood. Their neighborhood has always been what they've seen. And, and I tell people, I said, no, this isn't the neighborhood I live in. I could tell you what it was, horse stables up the street. I used to ride horses and things like that. This is an entirely different neighborhood, and it has not recovered. It, 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 folks haven't come back, obviously. People are now struggling in, in this neighborhood. <sighs> having to, to, to work harder to kind of maintain whether it's the house that they own or just the house that they or the apartment that they're living in. What policies do you think led to this? Well, I think the biggest thing that led to this is fear. But when we talk about policies, you know, when you say North End to folks, you can see folks kind of shudder. I mean, North End of Hartford now has become kind of like this no man's land. And I'm not just talking about uh, uh, white folks, even to some black folks and Latino folks. When you say North End, it's just this image of this lawlessness. And, and, and you know, you talk about redlining. If people are afraid of, a, of anything, they're going to have a tendency not to want to do anything there. I don't want to live there. They're not going to want to go to school there. I've been at school board meetings when they were talking about bringing kids into uh, one of these magnet schools. And I sat in a meeting and heard a small group of parents. There's no way in the world I'm having my kids come to the North End. But how much of that fear do you think stems from the redlining policies that go all the way back to the 1930s and 1940s that began to send a message to white homeowners that this isn't a place where you can feel safe. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm here because this property was left to me. Now, that's not to say I wouldn't be here anyway, but because it was left to me, you know, there's, there's obviously, you know, I'm rooted here. This, this, this is where my... <laughs> When it was really hard, when my grandmother who bought this house had to get a straw buy to actually buy the house. And for me, I've, I've always felt that as time went on, it would get better because I try to be an optimist. Young folks today, whether it be through busing or whatever, seem to mix better together. So 
You know, that's what my hope lies in terms of cities like Hartford and particularly in neighborhoods like North Hartford, that at some point there's going to be some very pioneering young people who may not look like us, me, that will, will, will purchase a home in North Hartford. The people that live in neighborhoods like mine are just like you. We want the same things you want. Decent housing, good schools, you know. I want to ask you one more thing about about the housing that is in the north end of Hartford right now. If you don't own your own home, there's an awful lot of rental properties. And the rental properties, by and large, aren't the sorts of places that a whole lot of people would want to live, but they're sometimes forced to, to live there. Tell me a little bit about that and about how you've seen that change over time as people haven't been able to necessarily buy their own properties in the neighborhood and then they're forced to live in places that are substandard. Well, uh, public housing. You well, started seeing second and third generation families living in public housing. The, the, a lot of the rental properties in Hartford are owned by absentee landlords, many of which don't even live in the state. They're, they're, they're in desperate need of repair in many cases. Uh, and you, you just, you just, folks are just being warehoused in them. Uh, and, and a prime example is right up the street from here is a place called uh, Baba Garden. And um, the whole con- 260 families were moved out of that complex because of the substandard living conditions in that. that, that and that's just one of many. When you're living in poverty, just at the poverty line, and you don't have many options. Those those are your options, and it certainly isn't good for the for the city. And as I said to somebody, here we are now in the midst of the census. There's 260 families that used to live in my neighborhood that are gone. So that lowers. I mean, just on a practical basis, that lowers our census count over here, and and we need services. Steve Harris, thanks so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for having. Me. Steve Harris lives in Hartford, Connecticut. Now we're going to hear from Brandon Haynes. He's white and from Farmington, a small town in rural Maine. And he's helped organize protests in support of the racial justice movement. Brandon says talking about race in his mostly white town isn't easy. In our area of Maine, you can go, at least I can. I don't know about other people, but you can go months without seeing a person of color. And that makes it very easy to forget the hardships that they go through. Especially when you're around a bunch of white people and they don't, race is never even brought up. It's always considered too controversial of a topic or insensitive because there isn't a black person in the room to speak for them. It just kind of makes me feel weird. The fact that white people aren't comfortable having, most white people aren't comfortable having a conversation about race. That was Brandon Haynes captured in a new video featuring young activists in New England. You can check out that video from the New England News Collaborative at nenc.news. Like Maine, New Hampshire is overwhelmingly white. And when recent immigrants look to find housing, they often find themselves shut out or forced to live in a few neighborhoods in the state's bigger cities, like Manchester and Nashua. Maria Eveleth of New Hampshire Legal Assistance works to remedy this. She tries to figure out if landlords discriminate against people because of their race or ethnicity. Maria, welcome to our show. No problem. My pleasure. Why don't you describe the work that you do for New Hampshire Legal Assistance? 
So as the Fair Housing Project co-director for New Hampshire Legal Assistance, my role is to enforce fair housing laws. We have a grant from the federal government, from HUD, to investigate cases of housing discrimination. We also have a testing program, which I am the testing coordinator. And what that is, we do testing and rental housing. We train individuals to pose as renters and portray all the protected classes and, you know, see if discrimination in housing is still happening. So tell me more about how the testing works. When, when you call up and you're a tester, what sort of information are you giving the potential landlord so that he or she can make some sort of determination about whether or not they they want to rent to you or not. So we give the profiles and in the description, we usually make the protected uh, tester profile slightly better than the controlled tester. Maybe they make a little bit more money. They have um, a really good stable job, great rental history just to narrow it down that the only reason they deny uh, this housing opportunity is because of that protected class. So let's say that we do a Latino test. So we send, um, we gave the tester all the information, the profile of who they're going to say they are, where they live, where they work. If it's only a phone test and they would, if it's a Latino, obviously we use a tester who has an accent who has a Latino name, relate all the information and moving because of this reason. And, and um, I'm interested in this apartment, gave in, you know the information, and then they take uh, notes of what the housing provider gives them. And then they, um, they get the report to us. And then half an hour later, the control tester and, you know, would call a white person with no accent, with a very American last name, call and ask for, inquire about the same unit, but maybe that tester makes a little bit less money, maybe their their uh, credit is not as perfect as the other tester, and then we compare the information, and we have uncovered that there is discrimination they tell the, the protected tester, for instance, oh, I'm sorry, we rented the apartment yesterday. I'll be happy to put you on a waiting list um, and, you know, give me your name and then come to find out they actually had two units available. They just didn't want to show it to that person. If you turn up an instance like that, mm-hmm. what happens next? What do you, what do, you do with that information? If we are able to find a complainant and we have, let's say somebody called New Hampshire Legal Assistant and said, I think I was um, discriminated in this housing opportunity because I am, you know, Latino or I'm from, you know, another country. I think the unit is still available. They just didn't want to rent to me. So because we don't have hard evidence, we do a test. And if we um, are able to get a positive test, then we'll file a HUD complaint with HUD. And then, you know, um, we'll, you know, they go through the investigation. And if they 
find discrimination, they will charge the landlord with discrimination. When you hear about this sort of discrimination in housing, do you think that it's mostly some sort of a an implicit bias, or do you think that it's overt racism? We don't want Latinos living in our in our neighborhood, or we don't want Latinos living in our building. Which which do you think it is in many cases? Well, you know, I think it's both. We, I mean, just me as a Latino, I um, I have experienced discrimination myself. Of you know, I am married to an American guy who has no accent and. I always wonder, for instance, sometimes when, you know, we were looking to buy a piece of land and I would call and I would never get a call back. And so my husband would call and they would call him back. And, you know, I was kind of naive thinking, you know, I don't know, maybe they just didn't hear the phone number or something, but it just happened so many times. I think it's just, you know just they don't want us here they probably think you know we not we're not going to incorporate to the culture then maybe we're going to just i don't know what it is but it's yes painful <laughs> it's it sounds like it's very painful you you yes. seemingly have a a positive attitude about it but it also feels like it must be very painful personally oh absolutely it is and my for my husband too he gets so mad <laughs> about it and you know it's just because no matter who you are no no matter what aspirations you have for yourself what you have accomplished for yourself people have made assumptions and they you know you are who you are forever and just people just don't give you a chance it's pretty hard (laughs) when did you move to new hampshire I came to the to New Hampshire in '91 from Columbia. From Columbia. Yes. Was it a big change for you? Yes. Oh my God, yes. And you know, most people um, come here not because they um, they really wanted to to leave their countries. You know, like in my situation, I came because of the violence that was going on in Colombia in the 90s. My family was a lot, you know, victim of that violence. So when I came, I was in my last year of law school and I sort of, you know, I was fortunate enough that I I had legal status. Um, But when I came here, it was such a shock. After all these years, do you like New Hampshire? Do you like living there? Oh, absolutely. I pretty I live pretty happy in New Hampshire and I cannot imagine moving back to Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> but it hasn't been easy. <laughs> you have to be pretty strong and have to have thick skin sometimes and just let things slide. <laughs> it sounds like you're doing a good job. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's Maria Eveleth from New Hampshire Legal Assistance. Coming up, we go to Amherst, Massachusetts, where a group of residents is looking to remedy long-term inequality by pushing for reparations in the town. 
This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. Welcome back. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Tracy Griffith. We asked our listeners for their stories about racism and housing, and we heard from listener Norma Wright. She's black, and she used to live in Connecticut. Now she lives in Birmingham, Alabama. She says that some of the factors in her leaving included a depressed economy and the lack of diversity in her profession. She writes, I was lucky enough to have health care and a small pension, but my having to work two part-time jobs because they didn't want to pay health care or benefits to even maintain living in Connecticut wasn't cutting it. Even if I decided to retire again and stay, I couldn't have afforded it. As to owning a home when it finally happened, wasn't easy, even with stellar credit and a good job. Lack of affordable housing is one of the reasons the towns become segregated. Now we're going to talk about one community's attempts to tackle another problem, systemic racism. A group of residents in Amherst, Massachusetts, have launched a reparations petition. Michelle Miller and Matthew Andrews live in town, and they are two of the lead sponsors. They're joining us to talk about the petition, And Michelle, could you first explain what you're petitioning for? Yeah, thank you, Tracy. So we are petitioning, it's it's actually a two-part petition. The first part of the petition is a speech act. So we're asking our municipality to essentially acknowledge racism in Amherst and commit to ending structural racism and to sort of uplifting black lives in our community. And then the the second part is the creation of a fund. This fund would be an equity fund that would help to close the gap in the disparities in housing, education, entrepreneurship in our community here. So Matthew, why this initiative now? And why Amherst, of all places? Well, now has to do with the possibility, the sense of possibility. You know, I think most people, if we recognize that we've harmed somebody, we want to repair the harm. And I think for the first time, there's a general sense grave harm has been done. And so what we're hoping and why we're moving forward now is with the possibility that there's enough collective will, there's enough people who recognize the, that harm has been done and the extent of the harm that's been done, that there's a motivation and a willingness to take action and to, to begin the process of repair. And Amherst is just because that's where we live. <laughs> this is by no means a, a replacement for a national reparations movement, which needs to happen, in my opinion. But just being residents of Amherst and business owners in Amherst, Michelle and I felt that you know we can at least start something at home and inspired by Asheville and Evanston and other local initiatives, you know maybe if there's enough of these local initiatives that happen, it could lead to something on a larger level. 
Michelle, maybe you could talk about the Blue Hills Road area and how it exemplifies a history of racial inequity in the town. Yeah, this was something that we came across as we started looking at reparations and talking to community members. So in this particular case, the racial covenant was that it was written into the deed uh, when the property was sold that black folks were not eligible to purchase property on Blue Hills Road. And interestingly enough, even though these things are no longer legally permissible, they're still in the records. They haven't been removed from the records. Part of the work that we plan to do here is to research the racism that has existed in Amherst. And I've spoken with a couple other real estate agents who have said that this racial covenant, that wasn't just a a unique event there. There were other streets and neighborhoods where racial covenants were written into the deeds. So we hope to bring those forward as part of our effort to educate the community about our history here. Matthew, how through this petition do you hope to confront this very uncomfortable history and make a way for change? How will the petition do that? Well, the petition is a starting point before the starting point, in a way. And when we looked around after the murder of George Floyd and we started to see Black Lives Matter signs popping up all around in front of people's houses and kind of acknowledged support for this movement, the question that we had was, you know, what does that mean? How much willingness is there to actually do something practical here? And so the petition was in some ways a way of saying, okay, is there a a willingness? What's kind of taking the temperature? Um, The work is working with the town council to develop the acknowledgement and apology for structural racism and the development of the fund. So how does this complement or build on the work that Amherst has already done to deal with institutional racism? Amherst is, you know, it's a primarily white town that, you know, didn't become primarily white by accident. And I doubt that most Amherst residents understand how that happened. And I myself don't understand the details of how that happened. And so Amherst can easily get by with thinking that it's on the cutting edge or doing enough because of the kind of progressive ideals of the town. What the town has done so far, there's kind of the long-term history and then there's the short-term history of um, the town working with the Human Rights Committee, uh, working with the Racial Equity Task Force to develop goals for the town manager with relation to racial equity. The town has also designated $80,000 for racial equity, I think specifically, in this fiscal year. So there's a few specific things that have been done. My sense is that the more progressive folks in the town have been dissatisfied with the town council's meeting of these kind of basic collaborative efforts. Michelle, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the local reparations piece. How does this work? Because oftentimes people just think it's giving money to black people. (laughs) 
Right, exactly. Helping people to understand that reparations goes beyond that, you know, a one-time cash payment or just like you said, giving money to black people. Um, It's really about looking at the disparities and looking at the 400 years of oppression and saying, okay, what can we do with our money to uplift black lives. It can be a number of ways. I know in Evanston's case, they have focused on housing as a priority. And I see that as something that we'll also be looking closely at. This can happen by, for example, offering down payment assistance by helping folks pay down debt so that home ownership is more possible. And so it's really important that folks understand it's not about blindly giving out money. It's about actually looking at the disparities that exist. And then, you know, one of the things that Matthew and I have been very clear about from the beginning is that Really, it is the injured party who gets to decide where the money goes and and how it's allocated. Michelle Miller and Matthew Andrews are Amherst residents and two of the lead sponsors of the Reparations for Amherst, Massachusetts petition. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. And that's our show this week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you learned something. This has been a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. Next week, join us as we continue this series of specials and look at the impact of racism on mental health in New England. We want to hear from you. How do you think racism affects mental health and treatment? What experiences have you had? Call our comment line, 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860 860- 275-7595 or email us at americaamplified at nepm.org Our program was produced by me, John Dankosky, Morgan Springer, Lydia Brown, Daniela Luna, and my co-host, Tracy Griffith. Vanessa Delatore is the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. Special thanks to Jacqueline Rabe Thomas of the Connecticut Mirror. Our theme music is by Latrell James. America Amplified and the New England News Collaborative are made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.